Hello, and welcome to For Your Listening Pleasure, a podcast focused on talking with interesting and diverse individuals and discussing how their backgrounds shape them into the people they are today. I am your host, Mallory Waxman. Today on the podcast, I'm excited to be welcoming Madeline Mann. Madeline is an HR and recruiting leader who has spun her insider knowledge of the hiring process into an award-winning career coaching empire called Self-Made Millennial. She has helped millions of individuals through her coaching program, Standout Job Search, by helping her clients find the glory in their stories. Her clients have landed roles at companies such as Netflix, Google, Goldman Sachs, Deloitte, NBC Universal, Amazon, and many more. Check out the Self Made Millennial on YouTube, and all links to Madeline's website and other resources can be found in this episode's show notes. Enjoy. Madeline, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm very excited for us to have this conversation. I think it's so timely given the fact that we're seeing all these layoffs happen. And I have been following your journey on LinkedIn and on social media. And so I was so excited when I reached out that you were able to come on the podcast. And one thing we talked about when we did our prep call was that feeling of being laid off. I had that experience over the summer and it kind of just feels like the rug has been pulled out from under you and you just don't know what to do. For our listeners, can you describe what the experience was like for you? Yeah. So working in human resources, you sometimes view that position as you are privy to everything and you're the one who conducts the layoffs, but not necessarily the one who is victim of them. But I'm here to tell you, even if you're the head of HR, that doesn't mean you're not going to get laid off. And so I was at a company. It was the company that was the highlight of my career. I loved working there. I loved the people. Um, I really had built a reputation there that I was proud of. And I would have conversations with the leadership um, saying, you know, stick around because the, the company was going through some tough financial times with any company, especially in the tech space. There's ebbs and flows and you have to do your best to get funding you need to continue. And so I was asked, please stay, please stay on, you know, don't, don't make, don't jump ship. And I said, absolutely. I will stay with you. And then one day half the company was called into a conference room and we were told, this is your last day with the company, pack up your things. We're so sorry, but we're going to have to let you go. And what was funny is I was shocked. I was saddened, but no one talked to me or kind of made me feel better because they thought I was there conducting the termination. They no one thought that I was actually getting terminated. They thought that I was privy to this, which was so interesting. I was like, no guys, I'm leaving too. So it, and it was so, it was exactly, as you said, it felt like the floor had released from under me and it was so strange to the next day to just not go back to this workplace where all of my friends were, where I had spent the past three years building a life. And I think you really hit on it. It's that connection and community that you form at your company. The company I was with, I was only with them for about 10 months before it happened. But even though we were all remote, the culture that we felt and the friendships and the bond that we ended up, you know, at the time, those of us who were laid off were all in like a X Slack channel. And we were talking and 
we were looking for jobs and everything, but someone really said it best. And they just said, I feel like I was fooled into believing the culture took care of us, wanted the best for us. We were believing what our CEO was saying at the time. And two weeks prior to the layoffs, he came out into a town hall and was like, we're good. Layoffs aren't even on the table. We're not even thinking about that. And then two weeks later, we get on another Zoom and he goes, if you get an email in the next 45 minutes, you've been like, oh, today is your last day and signs off Zoom. So that feeling of, oh my God, what now? And I think we're seeing that more and more happening in the news. But what I thought was so interesting, you talked about how you should always plan an exit strategy, but like you experienced where they said, don't jump ship. And where I was hearing layoffs aren't even on the table. At what point do you recommend people create an exit strategy? And do you do that even if you're happy? Yes. So like I said, I was very happy in my job, but what an exit strategy does, it's where you are cultivating your online presence you, your resume is, is great. And you've also been actively in your job thinking about what the next career step is so that you're proactively doing the right things in your job that you can then put on your resume and talk about in interviews. Your network is warm. And this is not a matter of I'm job searching right now. It's more of that. You do have this exit strategy that should anything happen you immediately have these options. And this should happen from the moment you land your job. Like You should be continuing to stay abreast. And of course, you know, you land your next job, give, your, give yourself a minute to breathe, of course. But once you get comfortable, really thinking about if I lost my job tomorrow, would I have a warm network of people who would give me jobs? Do I have the right projects and skills on my resume that would bring me into the next career step that I would want after this job? These are all such important questions to ask because when I built my exit strategy, I was able to get three, I think, no, four interviews within a week of being laid off and three job offers within a month of being laid off. And that was not because I suddenly woke up one day and started job searching. It was because I had that exit strategy in place. How important is a network? I love LinkedIn. I'm constantly connecting with people. That's actually how I connect with a lot of podcast guests. But I don't think people understand the importance of networking and connecting with those with in your industry or the industry you're looking to go into. It's incredible. You'll hear a lot of different statistics, but there's things like anywhere from 60 to 80% of roles that are filled, never hit job boards. And that's because these are often hired through means of, Hey, Mallory, we just laid off, you know, we just opened up this new role. Um, instead of opening up to hundreds, possibly even thousands of applications, I trust you. Is there anyone in your network, anyone, you know, who would be good for this role? Boom. I already start interviewing the people you told me to interview. And then maybe we open applications later. But at that point, a lot of the the people who we might end up hiring, those people are then uh, are, are likely to land the role. Or even people will meet you and think, oh, Mallory, you have such a diverse skill set. We're going to create a role at the company for you because we like you. It's not that we need this specific role. We want you in the business, which that's happened to me. I've gotten roles created for me. I have lots of clients where that's a really normal thing. So how do you 
tap into the 60 to 80% of jobs, you need to be known. You need, you cannot be your best kept secret of your industry. And what's so interesting is that it's not necessarily the best people in your industry who keep landing the job offers. It's the ones who people know. And that is kind of the key. You, you need to be thought of when these opportunities come up. Absolutely. And I think the biggest thing I've seen and experienced was letting people know that you were laid off. There is a shame component. And I know when that happened to me, I was shocked to see who was kept on the team I was on versus who left. And it takes a blow to your ego because you're just like, wait, I was producing great work. I was told I was doing a great job going above and beyond. Did you experience that as well? Absolutely. And I work with so many job search clients and they feel, Ooh, do I hide that I was laid off? And my message is no, don't hide it because anyone who understands business understands that layoffs are part of the name of the game. I've asked, you know, I've done polls on my social media before how many people have been laid off. It is a staggering number. I think it might even be the majority of people. It, it happens. And so the reason why someone was kept over you might be things like they were less expensive than you, or they, there was some sort of politics there where they had to keep that person around because they knew certain things or something like that, right? It's really difficult to say. And so my encouragement is to disclose that you were laid off very matter of factly, making a, making a factual statement you know, I, unfortunately there was two rounds of layoffs. I was laid off in the second round where over 60% of the workforce was eliminated. Boom, done. Don't over-explain, blah, blah, blah. Oh my gosh. No, it is, it's, it's business and it's no reflection of you as a professional. I did exactly that. I put it on LinkedIn. And then before I knew it, Crane Chicago had picked up my post because this was a startup in Chicago. And then it was just a field day of getting messages from people. And I know that during that period, it's hard to wrap your head around everything that's going on, but I would think that you want to seize the opportunities, respond to every message, get in front of people, let them know, Hey, I'm finishing my resume. I'll be able to send it to you in two days. What's the best email? Or can I have calls. Everyone was kind of making fun of me that the following week, I think I had 20 interviews, like calls with teams and people. I mean, I got over 150 messages. I was like trying to maintain and I had a spreadsheet of this person messaged me. They know this person. I responded. We have a call on this day. I sent my follow-up email, sent my resume to try to keep track of everything. But Definitely utilizing LinkedIn, I thought was so helpful going through that experience. Yes. I, one of the things that one of the executives who, when I got laid off, he looked at the other of us who we'd all been laid off. And he said to us, he said, our networks are about to grow exponentially. And it is interesting that in the job search process, yes, it's very stressful, but if you can look at it, If you can look at it like it's something fun where you're putting yourself back out there and you're saying, hello, former colleagues, hello, former classmates, I'm out here. Let's talk about what you've been up to. Let me share what I've been up to and let's see how we can add value to each other. 
it can be a really pivotal moment in your career that can be invigorating. Absolutely. And there should be no shame to reach out to people that you went to high school with or college or, oh, I met a few times because then what I was doing was saying, oh, I see that you're connected to someone at a company I'm interested in. Are you good friends with them? Would you feel comfortable making an introduction? This is what I'm looking for. And I would say 10 out of 10 times people were like, yeah, happy to do that. The easiest thing. And then I look at it as when people reach out to me now, you pay it forward. Absolutely happy to connect you with whoever it is. Yes. Or, hey, I saw that you got laid off. I'm going to comment here. So it bumps it up. So people in my network can see Um, the company I was laid off with over the summer just went through another round of layoffs last week. So like the rest of my team was gutted. So people were kind of coming in to the conversation on Slack. And I thought it was so timely because I'm going to be talking to you. And I actually posted your information in Slack being like, check out my podcast guest because she has such great information. And I know how terrifying it can be, especially if you have kids and mortgage and all these other expenses, healthcare. And you're just like, this is not the kind of job market we want to enter, which is why I think people talk about the side hustle, which you were doing during that time. And now you have had like over a half a million YouTube subscribers. I'm sure that number might be even higher at this point. But can you talk about what made you start the self-made millennial? So I was working as a head of HR at a tech company, and I was noticing what was leading certain candidates in the interview process to jump through all the hoops and get the hiring managers competing for them. Oh, I hope they accept versus the others who they were either getting stopped right at the resume phase or later. And it I realized it was not their qualifications. Of course, yes, qualifications are important, but what sent a hire manager from going from this person is incredible to I could pass on this person were things beyond qualifications. And that's when I really discovered this aspect of job shopping, that there are people who kind of go through their job searches, hoping that companies deign to give them and an interview and hopefully an offer versus other people who are job shopping, who are thinking, I have value. I know how to present that value. And I'm going to select the best possible opportunity for my future. And I'm confident in that. And that is really what inspired me to build this YouTube channel. I just started posting things. I didn't monetize anything for over two years because I was just having so much fun helping people. The success stories got so elaborate and exciting. And people kept saying, I need more premium things from you. I want coaching from you. So I launched digital courses and eBooks and my coaching program. And from there, it just skyrocketed to where I had to leave my job because that aspect of what I was doing was so successful and also so fulfilling. When you started, what were some of the takeaways or mistakes, I think is a better way to say it, that you kept seeing applicants constantly do? What are those like low hanging fruit things that we should know about? Well, one thing you have to know is if you were to see what an applicant tracking system looks like, which is where everyone's applications go to live when you submit them online, you would be shocked at what your competition looks like. And that is about over 80% of the applications really seem almost not related to the role. 
It seems like these people were just clicking easy apply on every single position. It is so much noise that you are not necessarily competing with people who are qualified. You're competing to be seen. So, and I think for a lot of people, they think, oh, I need to, you know, if I have the right qualifications, I'll submit online and I'll get the interview. There's no, there's no guarantee that anyone will even have read that. Or by the time that they do read it, they might already have enough candidates or whatnot. So I think that's the first thing that so many people have wrong is that they think that applying online is a job search strategy. And it really isn't. It, it's, it's just you putting your information in a database but with no guarantee that anything is going to happen next. So for example, it's not a secret since for years I've been saying my dream company is to work for Nike. If I'm on my deathbed and I never was on the Nike payroll or had it like on my resume, that will be a, a regret of mine. But I know Nike receives over 40,000 applications a week. How do you go about making yours different. I know someone sent a cake with their resume on it. And I was like, oh, that was so smart to do. But how do you, in those big companies like a Google or an Amazon or a Nike, how do you really get your scene? I know I sometimes in the past when I've applied, I'll look to see who the recruiter is and I'll DM them on LinkedIn saying, I just applied for this role. I'm not sure if you're the right recruiter. Here's my resume. Can you connect me with the right person? But I'm guessing they get inundated with people doing that too. So what would you say are techniques if people want to apply those bigger firms? Right. If we think about giant piles of paper right now, all of this is digital, but if you think of it as giant piles, the, the biggest pile maybe stacked to the ceiling are those 40,000 applications, right? So so you're right. That That is the least effective way to get a job at Nike. You look at the next pile, and it's dramatically smaller. I would say maybe it's seven to 10% of what that pile is that we just saw. Those are the people who are doing that thing that you just said, messaging recruiters. So already you are, you are better than, or not better, but you are in a better position than 90% of people. So already you've made a massive jump. Now that pile might still be thousands, but you've already jumped down. Um, then, you know, there's another pile next to that, which is people at Nike who have said, these people are good. You should talk to them. Okay. So maybe that's about a pile of, of 5%. So now, now that's even smaller. Um, and then there might be, um, another pile here, which is probably another, you know, just a few percent, which is when the recruiters at Nike say, I'm so sick of these piles. I am just going to go online and find the people who I want to interview for this role. I'm going to find people who have this exact skill set and I'm going to find them. And that's something um, I really help my clients with all of it, but that's something that I'm, I'm specialized in is how do you make sure that when that person at Nike is typing in who they want, that your face is showing up. And you can do this even if you are a career changer and whatnot. Um, and you can, I, I have clients who 15 recruiter outreaches a week, um, from top companies, uh, YouTube, Adobe, all these different ones. Um, but that's really the thing is just doing things that will get you into these smaller piles. And I'm not a huge fan of sending a cake. I mean, I think, I think then that's probably the smallest pile is something wacky and, and all that. I think I absolutely say, you know, you can experiment with those things, but maybe try some of the other smaller piles first. 
No, absolutely. I think that's great advice. How important is it that not only, yes, your LinkedIn's up to date, but you can Google. I Google people all the time. Does your social media and that presence that you have online still play such a huge role? I, I remember with the internet, when it started and Facebook started, people were really super afraid. Now everything is online. Is that still being looked at as heavily as in years past? It is super important. Uh, interviewers do Google you. And not only have I seen this from the HR perspective, but every time I've gotten into later round interviews with a company, they have brought up that I used to, years, maybe even a decade ago, I would create music. And the only way you would know that, I don't write, I didn't write that on my YouTube channel, on my LinkedIn, on my resume, nothing. The only way you'd know that is if you Googled and you kind of scrolled down a few pages and you found that link. And so it would always show that, yes, all of these interviewers are, are Googling me. Um, and one of the things that's so important is to curate what that looks like, but also them Googling you and not finding anything is also a statement. And it's not a good statement in today's day and age. How so? Can you dive into that? Yes. So it's okay to not be a creator, an influencer, right? A, a thought leader online. I'm not saying you need to do that. But if they cannot identify where your LinkedIn profile is um, or something like that, that you kind of exist online, it really, especially, you know, at a manager level or whatnot, it, it can kind of give this idea of... Um, that really, that maybe you're a little bit more secretive or that you haven't really built up a career and that that you are displaying on LinkedIn, that you're really standing for, um, especially as you get to more of these managerial positions um, and anyone who will represent your company, it, it really is a strange thing to not be able to find them. And sometimes one of the reasons is, is that even your, your LinkedIn settings are too private. My my rule of thumb is LinkedIn should be a public page that is out facing to the world. A lot of people hide their last name. A lot of people hide their photo. And what it ends up looking like, it ends up looking like an incomplete profile. When really your profile is complete, you just have too many privacy settings on it. No, that's good to know. You talk about finding the glory in your story, which I thought was so interesting. Can you explain what that means to listeners? The person who lands the job isn't necessarily the most talented. It's the person who articulates their value the best. And that is why people who are good at their jobs are not necessarily good at job searching, which is this really frustrating thing for job seekers is they think, I know I could do this job if you just gave it to me, but you gave it to this other person who has half the qualifications I do, but that person who you're surprised they landed the role, that person wove a great story. They were, they tied their value to the results that the company was looking to achieve. And I think too often we think that a resume is supposed to be a Wikipedia page of everything we've ever done when really it should be a sales page of why we are going to solve that company's problems. So I was smiling when you were saying that because that 
that's me. I will look at certain job descriptions and think like I could do this plus some, but then it's the process of changing my resume. So the keywords are in there and the cover letter, I'm just like, this is like, there's part of me that on the cover letter, I just want to write, like, trust me, just hire me. I, I get shit done. And I have been tempted at sometimes to be like, I wonder if this will get their attention more or less to be like, just trust me, I'll get the job done and then some and see how that works just to stand out a little. Because I would think if you were somebody who's constantly reading cover letters and it's like, okay, it's you're saying all the right buzzwords, but what's jumping out? Obviously, I've not used that tactic. I don't think it's a good idea to have one sentence just saying hire me. Um, but it did make me smile when you were talking about that because it's frustrating having to explain or try to sell yourself Whereas I would rather just have a phone call and let me explain to you why you want me. Absolutely. It's really exhausting. And that's, if, if that wasn't the case, Mallory, I wouldn't have a business and I would love that to not be a case. And I would love my business to be obsolete. I train people every day to become job shoppers where even though they're really good at their job, how to transform that into you have to basically make a high ticket sale when you ask someone to hire you. You're saying, hey, I need you to put down, you know, 50,000, $100,000, $200,000, whatever, whatever is your salary. Make this, you know, buy me as a product, rent my time. And most of us are not trained salespeople. And even if we are, the hardest thing to sell is yourself because you are too close to your own story. You are sitting in the bottle and you can't read the label. I'm sure you could market the heck out of so many things, but it's just like, when it comes to yourself, it's like, oh, okay. I'm just, there's so many data points that it's, it's actually difficult to wade through all that information and get to the things that the company needs to hear. And then not to bring gender into it, but got my MBA. I took a negotiation class. I'm not trying to make a blanket assumption, but I remember my negotiation professor who I adored, who actually helped me negotiate with jobs since the class said women really are not great at negotiating we feel uncomfortable we don't want to ask for a certain dollar amount so we end up undervaluing ourselves we don't want to push back because we're afraid the job's going to get taken I'm sure others feel like this but it's shown that studies have showed that women are not as great as demanding what their worth is do you have any advice for people who are listening who feel uncomfortable going and asking for that raise because they're afraid about being laid off or knowing they're putting in time and a half or doing two jobs instead of one? How do you go about demanding your worth? I definitely think it's so important to make the ask, especially if you are someone who's valued or if the company is extending an offer, they want you. And you just have to stop viewing it as adversarial, you know, them versus you push and pull. And if you view it as sitting on the same side of the table of, okay, great. I'm interested in you. You're interested in me. Let's figure out a way to make this work. Okay. You know, this is the number I'm targeting. What's, is there a way that we can get to that number and holding strong and not negotiating against yourself? I, I hear so many women say, you know, this is the number I'm targeting. 
Um, is there a way that we can get there? But you know, no worries. I know, I know that's that's a big that's a big difference than what you're saying. So, so no, no, it's like wait, you're already negotiating against yourself. Like just hold up, speak less, and that is one of the best things I can say is speak so much less. This is the number I'm targeting. You know? I think what can we do? I think the Ooh. big fear is, oh, if I ask for a number, they're going to pull the offer. And as someone who is head of HR, does that really happen? Or is that more of like a myth? Sure. It has happened in the existence of the world. It definitely has happened. Um, first of all, it's all, it's extremely rare. It, we basically assume you're going to negotiate and nearly every job offer has a built-in buffer that kind of assumes, okay, maybe we we have some wiggle room, unless the conversation has already been very active leading up to the offer. So if if we've been talking a lot about what is the salary range, and then as you're as we go through and learn about your experience, being like, okay, you're in this range, in this bracket for this reason. Um, and then you know, you maybe throw a really big number at them at the end after these numbers have been thoroughly discussed, maybe they could, you know, get, get, you know, distraught and, and pull it away. But even so pulling it away is, I've never seen that happen personally. And so it's, I think that that fear should be out of your mind. It's really more about, okay, how do I word this properly? Which is something I constantly coach people on is here's exactly how to word it. Here's what to ask for. Um, here's how to ask for it. And when you do it the right way, it feels it feels like a partnership and you do get what you need and what you deserve. And when it comes to your job, obviously job security is not a real thing. People buy into that. They think their company's secure, so they stay there for 20, 30 years. That's hurting their overall gross revenue like for their lifespan. And I read something that says you should really be changing jobs every two years in order to continuously increase your salary. How, at what point should you start looking for a new role or have that conversation with the manager? Does it make sense to stay in your current company or to look externally if you're looking to grow your salary and also opportunities? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say it is good to be either learning or earning. That's usually, especially earlier on in your career, learning or earning is a really good thing. And sometimes you might not be earning as much, but it's setting you up for greatness. And I think that especially earlier in your career, um, not necessarily just jumping for the highest job offer, but is there, is there valuable skills and relationships I can build here? But I think there's actually a third component that I think, especially as you go throughout your career, you really realize is super important. And that is lifestyle. And I think that taking a lower pay or, you know, going for a job that's maybe less stressful, more flexible, allows you to live the lifestyle that you desire um, emotionally feel balanced and secure. Those are the things that you really want. So I think that you need to, you know, learning, earning and lifestyle. If you can kind of constantly be evaluating that. Um, and I do think two to three years is kind of more of a, a standard these days of switching jobs. Um, but I also think you should always be interviewing. You should always be on the job market just as a reminder of how much you're worth. 
how much would these other companies pay me to leave? And you don't have to leave your job. They'll probably actually want you even more if you say, I'm just kind of, you know, lightly looking. So that is always good to just to stay, stay on the ball with that. What are some of the classes or the resources that the self-made millennial provides? So the first is my resume revamp masterclass, which is where I talk about my glory formula for the resume, which is pretty unique in that it builds your resume from the opportunity backwards. So many people will tell you to write your resume based on what is the coolest thing about your experience forwards, which leads to, again, this disconnected message. There's also have a job shopping webinar, which is a little bit more advanced where it's about, okay, how do we set yourself up as a, uh, as a really high value candidate who's landing all these job offers. Um, and yeah, I recommend also just checking out, you know, self-made millennial YouTube channel, the TikTok, um, my website, madelineman.com. I have so many free templates and, and worksheets and videos. Um, and then if you want deeper coaching, we have coaching as well. So I'm going to add all of those links to this episode show notes. So it's super easy for listeners to go ahead and click and learn a little bit more. And then do you also do like individualized coaching? I know for myself, like writing a resume is like I mentioned earlier, so painful. Do you help individuals with that? Is that something that you offer as a service? Yes. I have a coaching program called Standout Job Search, which is a to Z transformational. And it is, you know, yes, we help with the resume. Yes. We help with optimizing your LinkedIn. So you're getting, um, inquiries. Yes. It's, it's all about the interview as well. And so, yeah, that has been my life's passion. The, the success stories that come out of it are absolutely staggering and it truly is a transformation. You start to land more promotions. You start to see yourself as a job shopper. So absolutely, um, we have that on my website as well. And then I know sometimes in the past, people will always say, oh, just work with a recruiter. All right, but when you Google recruiter or marketing recruiter, or you look on LinkedIn, it's like all these different names and you're like, does this work? Is this the right way? Or how do I get in touch? Cause you hear friends being like, Oh, a recruiter reached out to me. What would you tell those listeners? Do you find recruiters? Do they find you? How does that process really work? I There's a little bit of both. I mean, in the end, recruiters work for the company. They don't work for you. Um, so that's, that's a, that's a good point. Um, it is good to keep in contact with recruiters. So even if a recruiter approaches you with a role that is not a good fit, take the call, talk to them, stay in touch. Um, as well as being that person who shows up in the recruiter searches when they're looking online, that is one of my favorite things to coach on. And it's, it's unique for different, for different people, but being that person at the right moment, at the right time, just having your online presence work for you while you sleep is one of the most game-changing things that you'll ever do in your career. I'm so curious now because I, after going through it over the summer, obviously revamped my LinkedIn and resume and listening to you now talk about it. I'm like, I feel like I need to go look at it again and 
even though you just never know when the rug might be pulled out. Job security definitely is not a real thing. We're looking at these companies that are making millions, if not billions of dollars, and they're still laying off people left and right, aka Google, I'm looking at you. Um, But it's just so interesting to me. What advice would you give for those like final interviews? I feel like you get to a point, some, a lot of places now have projects and this, and by the time you get there, it's been five or six meetings, you jump through all the hoops, you're meeting all the team, you can get kind of burned out, especially if you're doing this with multiple groups. And I think one reason why I didn't get a role over the summer with a company I was interested in, because I was doing so many interviews by the time I got to like the fifth or sixth meeting with this team, it was like five or six o'clock at night, I was exhausted and I didn't show up my best self, but they were trying to get me to meet the entire team because they knew I had other offers on the table. And so it's hard to be outgoing and smiling and say the same stories about how do you prepare for those final round interviews? What I've noticed about these final rounds is that while big gestures can land you interviews, It's the small gestures that land you offers, and it's very nuanced. It's the way you position certain things in your past. It's the way you hit on competence triggers and and use high-value phrases instead of low-value phrases. Um, The way you build rapport with the people at the companies. Um, I, I... I think about, um, you know, my client, Wilson, who he just, he had the perfect resume. And I was thinking, why is he not landing more offers? He'd gone through, I think, seven different companies, didn't land an offer, any of them, but made to, to the final round interviews. And looking at his his ability to interview, I, I was able to pinpoint, okay, that's it. The way he, the even the tone of his voice, he was using like this interview voice that a lot of people use. And I was able to say, okay, wait, let me, let's fix this here. Let's talk more this way. Okay. Then the stories he was using, I said, Wilson, you know, like I, you, you use this example when you should have used this and this example and goes, oh my gosh. Right. So, so being able to see it from a new perspective. And then yes, he was using these low value phrases where I'm like, Wilson, you are an amazing professional and the way you just talked about yourself kind of decreased your value. And so it is so interesting. And that's why I really think getting interview help, getting doing mock interviews, all those types of things is so crucial because I I do give very big, wide sweeping interview advice that I think is extremely helpful to people. But when it comes to sealing the deal on the offer, it's these nuances that make the big difference. Three summers ago, I was looking for a new role. I got through with Amazon. I got to the final round, the eight-hour interview. And I had a friend who worked there who gave me the interview questions. Amazon's very weird with their interviews. There's a certain way you have to respond to every question using the STAR method. I took like a week off of my job for a vacation and sat and answered every question in the star method. I think my interview prep was like 40 pages typed. I I kid you not. And someone had recommended this YouTuber who came from Amazon, who helped teach you how to interview. And she was doing like live YouTubes and everything. And she's like, yeah, you should be preparing a month or two for your final interview. That made me so nervous 
thinking how much prep people do for these interviews, but you are spot on that if you don't go in, you're not saying the right story at the right time, even though you're capable, you're never going to get the job. It, it's it's truly a high ticket sale. And at Amazon, you're making a high ticket sale to a company that has the pick of the letter, right? Like it, it really is. It is one of the most competitive companies to work for. And so Yes, it, it's the preparation is so, so crucial in that case. Yeah, I mean, I look like Rain Man when it came time to the interview because it was still during COVID. So I was on Zoom, but behind me was notes and post-its and phrases. And I was making sure you don't repeat a story throughout the eight hours you're talking to people. So I was like crossing things off. It was, I, it was a different level. Uh, I'd never prep for anything like that, but it's just interesting that that's where interviewing has gotten and taken us to. Yeah. It, the, the bottom line is companies are terrified to make the wrong hiring decision. And while job seekers are optimizing for time, they want to optimize. They're like, I only have a certain number of hours in a day. I also have only a certain number of weeks until my, savings run out. Like I need to land a job as soon as possible with the highest, you know, that meet my standards. Companies are thinking, oh my gosh, we need to make sure that the next hire we make doesn't, isn't toxic to the team, performs well, doesn't leave the company within a few months. Um, Because any company who has had attrition or has had to terminate an employee realizes had they made a better hiring decision, it would have saved them thousands of dollars and hours and hours of time and emotional energy. And so that's the thing to know is all of this preparation, all of these interviews you're going through is all built out of fear on the side of the employer. And that's one of the things I really teach my clients is how to allay those fears, especially if you're a career changer, those fears are even higher because you're not proven in that area, but you can absolutely overcome it. And it's interesting. After I got laid off, I was thinking, I'm not going to just take a job to take a job. I want it to be the right fit. And I felt like I was going into interviews with a different attitude. Like you would be lucky to have me. So when I was answering responses, I felt like that confidence, like I don't need you, even though my bank account was running low. It was more, you need me and you would be lucky for me to be a part of your team. And I felt that shift in how others approached me when you're in that place of fear after being laid off and you're going through all these, take a deep breath. Remember you do have worth, you do have value. They would be lucky to have you as an employee. And I think if you approach it before you go in to that room, you might come off more natural versus kind of more all over the place. That's it. That's, that's the job shopping mentality. That is so, so true. Companies want to get excited about the person they're about to bring in. If you're excited about yourself, if you have confidence, they're going to be much more likely versus you being like, well, okay, let me just warn you. I don't have every single thing you wrote down the list. So maybe I'm not the perfect person, but it's like, no, like let's, 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 you know, really show up with what we have and be proud of it. The last thing I want to cover with you was I remember an interview Michelle Obama did where she said that men all the time just apply to jobs. They go, yeah, I can do this. 
even though maybe like they can do 50% of what's being asked, women might read things and go, I can do 70%, but I'm still a little afraid to go ahead and apply. I remember seeing that and thinking, I'm never going to stop going for a role or going for a job because I don't fit all the criteria. Because realistically, why would you want me to do 100% of the role if I can do 100%? There's nowhere for me to grow. And then you're going to lose me because I'm going to get bored. I would rather say, listen, if I don't know an answer, I'm going to figure it out. Don't worry. Like, I might not know how to do that now. Give me four weeks. I'll figure it out. Do you see that being a big thing that holds people back as they look at what the requirements are and think, I can't do all of this, so I'm not going to apply? Absolutely. People self-reject all the time. If someone's going to reject you, just make sure it isn't yourself, okay? Let these companies reject you. Let them tell you you're not qualified enough. Sure, but you'll be surprised at how many companies will say, oh, oh, Mallory, you've done 50% of this? Perfect. Like that's the, that's the core 50% we really need you to know. And I want to touch on what you said about getting bored that when we talked about fear earlier, that is a huge fear. People think that it's actually, that it's easier to land jobs that are lower than what they were targeting, but it's actually, it's actually the complete opposite. The reason why companies don't hire people who are overqualified is because they're terrified you're going to take the job get bored. And this is just the job you're taking until you find the actual real job you want. And honestly, every time I've seen someone who's overqualified, take a job that was lower, if they prove the company, right, they do end up leaving in under a year. They do end up getting bored. They do end up saying within a few months, Hey, I'm just as qualified as my manager. Like what's my path? Can I move up? Companies don't want that. They want someone who is so excited about this job, the one job they are interviewing for at the company, not about what they're going to do next. So you really need to stop shooting for the roles that are lower, thinking that they're easier to get. No, you want to actually, if you're going to get uncomfortable, go high. So you would recommend like, even if it's a little bit above where you're punching at the time, still do it because there's more room to grow and you'll probably stay in that role longer, which saves the company money in the long run. Absolutely. I think if you are a little bit intimidated by a role, you're getting far in the process and you're thinking, can I even do this job? That's a really good sign that this is your next step. And when have you ever taken a job and not proven to yourself, wow, I got in that job. I learned the industry. I learned new skills. I got to know the different things. You've proven to yourself time and time again that you can level up. Why is this job any different? So interesting. I could talk to you all night about this. I know you're very busy and I appreciate you taking time to speak with me. I would love if maybe in six months when the job market's a little different or in a year, have you come back on and let's talk about what do people need to know, especially I feel like over the holiday season, it's when companies start to freeze what they're hiring and when the new budgets come out, is that really when you want to start letting everyone know you're open to conversation. So there's so many more topics we can dive into. And as both the generations are changing and people coming in and out of the workforce are changing, these conversations are so important to have an understanding of what's going on in our economy. Absolutely. I would love to come back and talk more.
Yeah, I would love that. So I end every episode with the final three questions. And the first question is, if you had a quote or a mantra that you live by, what would that be? I live by the mantra, progress over perfection. I really like to just keep moving, make things happen. And that has been kind of one of the secrets to my success is is do it and make progress over really scrutinizing, was this the right move? Is this exactly perfect? I think that's actually a perfect response because it definitely shows not only what you've dedicated your time and energy towards, but also what you're telling your clients to do too. The second question is, if you could relive any one day, which day would you choose? I think I would relive uh, one day on uh, an Alaska cruise with my husband for our honeymoon. And I just remember... Before the cruise, I said, ooh, when we're on the cruise, uh, we'll have some downtime and I'll get to do some work on my side business. And he said, no, 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 we're we're not going to work on this trip. Like, this is our honeymoon. We're not going to pull out any computers. And I said, okay, sure. And there was a few days into the cruise where I had this total technology detox and I realized there's more to life than working. Even though I love my work, I love what I do. It was this moment of there are other things. There's more important things of just being in the moment. And so that was a huge clarity moment for me. No, I think that's a great lesson. The final question is, if you had a theme song that played every time you walked into a room, which song would you pick? I would choose Windy by The Association. It's kind of an old song from the 60s, but it's the most... Like like sunshine skipping your step song that I I've I this has been my answer for like a decade. I absolutely love that song. I love it. I haven't listened to it, so I'm excited to hear it. But I'm going to add that to the for your listening pleasure theme song playlist on Spotify, so listeners can enjoy the sunshine vibes and walk along with it. Again, Caroline, thank you so much. This has been so lovely. I appreciate you taking time and talking to me and also all the work you do Uh, listeners definitely go check out her youtube channel i'll put all the links in this episode's show notes thank you so much